0: You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. We've reached the end of another week. Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, is in the house. If you've got a question for Colin and you'd like to talk to him, the number is 833-288-288. E-W-T-N. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. Um, and uh, we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 uh, you can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com, uh, or you can text your question to Colin, text the letters EWTN to 55000, wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky. And Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts, so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm going to fix your your little machine here in a minute, so...
2: Well, nobody gave me the secret word I helped to say. You yeah, know, it's not.
1: Yeah, well, we, we we chose to chat about something else other than what we need for the show. Well, so. that's exactly. This is
2: the exigencies of live radio, we're not really on whole, sticking to the bubble, are that's we? That's
1: exactly right. Hey, so listen, something that we've gotten calls about all week long. Yeah. That and and and, and I didn't know this when I just said that to you, but now I noticed that the first call up on our board is regarding this as well. Is the whole controversy over? The uh, priest in the Archdiocese of Phoenix uh, right, who yeah. has been baptizing for several decades uh, using the improper form saying we baptize you as opposed to I baptize you. And it has caused a lot of consternation amongst the faithful and a lot of confusion amongst the faithful. So I thought it would be a good idea at the beginning of the program to not only talk about this specific incident and the ramifications for those who have been quote-unquote baptized by this priest over the years. And then also just talk in general about the importance of the form and matter of the sacraments.
2: Right. I, I think that's upset a lot of people because, you know, first of all, human beings as we are, we're probably going to start thinking, well, is my baptism valid or not? You know, there are obviously those people who have identified a problem in their baptism or thought there was and it's later been proven to be correct. You know, but I, I think the first thing to say up front is I don't think we need to all go and agonize whether we were really baptized. Uh, th- that would be one element of it. The church has a lot of presumptions, obviously, in its uh, in its decisions, and that is that priests will use the proper matter and form and intention. They will, in celebrating the mass, they will use the words given by the church in ador- uh, for absolution. Uh, they will perform all the sacraments according to the the norms of the church, and that's going to be the presumption until some evidence arises that that's not the case. And I think that's uh, this is this has been the case for a couple thousand years now, so it's not like this is like a new emergent problem. I think certainly historically it's a bit more of a problem because there was a definite question, I think, in laxity in in seminary formation. Uh, After the council, uh, where every, you know, sort of the the spirit of happiness and joy and the evangelization was more about community and, and all of that, and forgetting the fact that the church is dependent upon divine revelation. Uh, you know we're unlike physics where we have laws worked out over centuries by Newton and Einstein and and many others over the over time uh, and those laws are applied faithfully you know and in, in sending a rocket to the moon or the Mars if you didn't follow those laws you wouldn't get to your destination well the church's laws are divine revelation as given through sacred scripture and sacred tradition as saint Paul tells us and in from those two sources the church, says that baptism is baptism by water that's the sign it's using the formula that christ gives in matthew 28 was he said go baptize in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit uh now what goes with that go there's no complete formula there But the Church very quickly began to understand, and we find this in the Fathers, that it's not the individual who baptizes, whether he's a priest or a layman in an emergency. It's Christ who baptizes in every single case. And Paul even emphasizes that in a controversy regarding people who are baptizing in the name of Peter and Apollos and even Paul. No, that's not what we do. We don't even baptize in the name of Jesus. We baptize in the name of the Father And of the son and of the holy spirit one name because there's one divine nature god and three persons and so each one is named individually so formulas that are not expressing that idea of christ baptizing uh in that way are general our rule to be to be false and an example of that would be i baptize in the name of father son and holy spirit because there you're not naming the person uh, there are other ceremonial aspects of it, the threefold pouring and the threefold immersion, that sort of reinforce that. But in the words, it, it needs to say that as well. And so those kinds of things, when they're discovered, the church says, you know, wait a minute, we can't really, you know, that can't be accepted. We have to stick to what has been revealed through sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That's the, the, what the church relies upon. So all those downstream sacraments from an invalid baptism are, are also invalid. Uh, we learn in John 3 that baptism is the door to eternal life. That means it's the door to the church. It's the door to the sacraments. Uh, it's the door that gets us into Christ through baptism, in, into his death and rising in his, uh, his new life, his resurrection. And so we can't skip that step and say, well, the others are okay. But, in fact, all of the sacraments are fairly easily corrected if it's ever identified that there was, you know, a problem in their celebration. Uh, And so I think if people have a genuine concern that's not motivated by sort of a scrupulous concern that, well, all these priests were doing this in the 70s and 80s or whenever, I don't think that's the case. I think some were out of misplaced desire to be more inclusive and communitarian in their approach, to welcome people into the local community, not remembering that it's the universal community of the redeemed, it's the mystical body of Christ, it's not their community, it's Christ's community. Uh, And so those things have to be corrected. Uh, But I don't think it's otherwise something that is you know other than those individual cases it's it's not going to be a major crisis in the church unless you yourself are personally affected by it then of course it's a big deal and it needs to be resolved
1: um... and then the same sort of an idea applies across the sacramental spectrum huh?
2: it it does uh... you would realize of course obviously if you went to a single mass and the priest forgot words or something like that and it was not a valid mass then that would, you know, Mass is one time, and then the next day you can receive again or go to another Mass. Uh, Absolution, you could always confess again. Um, So with some of those things, marriage pretty much takes care of itself because— If a Catholic is married to a non-Christian and the non-Christian is baptized, that natural marriage, that bond of marriage, which is from a natural institution by God, is raised to the sacrament simply by the baptism of the other spouse. So likewise, in this case, people who believe themselves to be in a sacramental marriage, it would be the instant the unbaptized person was baptized. Uh, So confirmation would have to be redone, and as his priest in Detroit found, his, his orders of diaconate and priesthood had to be redone, as well as confirmation and his original baptism.
1: We're just getting started on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, our toll-free phone number is 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-EWTN. Three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 271 2985 And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 271 2985 You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's OpenLine at EWTN.com and put Friday or Colin Donovan in the subject line and we'll get it to the appropriate location. Or you can even text your question. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply. It's EWTN's open line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: You know, we like to get our Franciscan groove on around here at EWTN. Mother Angelica, obviously, was a poor Claire Franciscan nun. We have Franciscan friars that roam around the campus, uh, virtually unabated.
2: Nobody corrals them, as far as I know. (laughs) uh, In a good sense.
1: We're going to help you get your St. Francis groove on with a beautiful (laughs) statue of St. Francis of Assisi It's crafted of fiberglass, and it's beautifully hand-painted and imported from Peru. St. Francis stands peacefully with his hands crossed across his chest, cradling across. A stack of books and a white dove sitting on them rests at his feet. And this statue measures a beautiful 16 inches high and comes with a removable gold wire halo, unlike Colin Donovan has a permanent halo. And uh, it's available now at EWTN's religious catalog, that's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping right now on orders online orders of uh, $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. First up today is Joan in the great state of New Jersey listening on the EWTN app. Joan, you have a deep-thinking six-year-old.
3: <laughs> I do. She has lots of great questions, and yesterday um, she asked, "Did God create heaven?"
2: Uh, yes and no. Um, there are three ways in which we can distinguish uh, he- the, the word being used for heaven. There. One of them is the heaven in which God exists, and there, and that is heaven in the strict sense of its god it's eternal uh never existed it will never end and in it's it's he himself His his nature the other is heaven in the sense of the state in which the angels were created as creatures they were created in uh uh, not in a space but in a condition uh, of not of beatitude yet but after their uh, after their test uh, they, were, they were given grace, the uh, sal- grace of salvation, and ever since then they have existed in this heaven, which Thomas Aquinas calls an Ave eternity It's like eternity, but it, it isn't the eternity, which is God himself. And then finally, that's comparable then to the heaven in which the blessed are in during the time between now and the end of the world. But, of course, we're told that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so at the end of history, the end of time, uh, in a way, all that is not hell will be a place in which the just uh, exist. It will be a place. Um, Heaven, per se, is not a place. It's a state, as Pope John Paul II taught. It's a state of being eternally with God and in God. Uh, for the for the good soul for the poor poor souls they are elevated to that from their state of purgation uh, for those at the end of time of course they will go immediately into that state and the purgation will be the the suffering of the end of time so heaven is not a place in the sense that we understand place uh, but it is where God is and uniquely God uh, because only He can as it were occupy that. Place in very super large quotes.
1: Do you think you can translate that, Joan? Probably not.
4: I made a couple notes. I will translate. <laughs> to you. Thank you very much. You're very <laughs> welcome. Okay.
1: Thanks so much for the phone call. That frees up a line for you at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 three nine eight six you're you're no hey brother leo i'll just tell you that comment. i was
2: gonna say i didn't bring that down so far to where the grass can where the goats can get to, to it. But uh, that's right that's what mothers and fathers are for there
1: you go uh next up is gary in jackson michigan and he is listening on the amazon echo today gary thanks for holding welcome to the program
4: yeah hi Uh, My question is, I kind of like to revisit your remarks on baptism. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like the intent is being negated, kind of like. And the reason I'm asking is because when the Chaldean Church joined Rome, when they reviewed their liturgy, they found out they were not using the words of institution in their mass, and they had not been. And they didn't know if the priesthood was even valid, but they concluded that it was because it was the intent to have the consecration or whatever, you know, the holy mm-hmm.
2: species. Yeah.
4: So it seems in for baptism intent is being negated, whereas in the Chaldean situation, you know, it was being promulgated. Yeah. Just wanted you to a comment.
2: Sure. And remembering that the Church developed was developed by different apostles in different places. So what Rome relied on in ma- making that decision, and that was back when uh, I believe Cardinal Ratzinger was, or the future Pope Benedict was the prefect of the Congregation of Faith, and John Paul II was Pope. There they're talking about something which had been handed on in an apostolic tradition and which... Contained as many of the Eastern formulas of of the consecration do, um, they have the, the idea that it's not simply the words, such as a Thomistic analysis, and ultimately the Council of Trent uh, relied upon as well, but it's that everything from the Epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit, through that whole part of the Mass together. Yeah. Which effected the consecration, and that's been their tradition. And what Rome found is that's an apostolic tradition from the place in which uh, in which they are. In the case of the West, that's not been the tradition, and therefore it's, you know, if you're not following what is the apostolic tradition by Peter and. Uh, Paul and the other others who had effect on the development of Western Christianity, uh, then you're not you're not doing what the what what the church has always done, and so the church has tolerated two approaches to this question, uh, the one which doesn't attempt to sort of rationally get to well it's these exact words as Thomas did as the Council of Trent did, that gives you a clear marker because when you don't when your words are not expressing what the effect on the matter will be which is what the form the form or the formula if you if you want to call it that does it says what is taking place this this thing i'm holding is not symbolizes it is my body so it looks like bread but it's my body this chalice of of wine essentially becomes then my blood, the chalice of salvation. There you have the form expressing that. And what it was saying is that it does this in another way. In other words, the apostolic faith is preserved in the way they have done it for literally most of the last 2,000 years, more or less, since that uh, the, the church in that part of the world was established. So there's quite a difference in there than, than knowing that what the intention is. So here, the, in, the intention is not expressed by the words, whereas in the, and I don't know that it was the Chaldeans, I think it was one of the churches of the East, not Armenian, but in that part of the world, certainly, that the words being wrongly used, you know, we baptize you, doesn't express the faith of the church, which is that Christ is doing the baptism. There's the contradiction. Now, it's a contradiction of a form which is used in the West, which must be very carefully constructed. Uh, And in that that form that was used, it contradicts what the form used in the West, in Rome specifically, has always been. And so that's where the analysis is coming out from. Um, It's not sort of a purely legalistic approach that, well, you've got to use these words— Other traditions have not done that exactly. You look at the Eastern liturgies, they're not necessarily uh, identical among them on baptism and confirmation and the other sacraments. But they expressed what the apostolic tradition expresses, to make priests, for example, or to baptize into Christ and so on. And so that's, I think, the lens that Rome has looked at that question. And certainly what we have by having the supreme magisterium in the western church meaning the bishop of rome you know outside of whose authority there is no supreme authority we have we have the uh, the joy as it were and the great grace of having it quite clearly defined and distinguished so that in the case of anglican orders for example pope leo had very solid traditional markers by which to judge the anglicans uh, the the form of their right and what the intention of that form was and it wasn't to make sacrificing priests uh, and therefore th- when it changed from the you know the the Henry early Anglican form under Henry into the Cranmerian form that came along later that's that sense that intention was lost so, I think Rome is looking at it from both those points of view, I think more strictly in the West, where we ought to know better, because we have clear markers laid down, but according to the apostolic tradition of the other churches in other parts of the world uh, as well, who are as old as we are. They just don't have the supreme magisterium uh, in those churches.
1: Thanks so much, Gary. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. We've got a couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. We'll head next to Jerry in Naples, Florida, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jerry, you're on with Colin Donovan.
4: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. You're Welcome. Uh, that that was a question or a lecture. I'm not sure what the previous individual was. <laughs> but my question is going to be much uh, more simpler.
2: Okay. My mom
4: was was a nurse back in the 1950s, and she worked in Babies Hospital in Columbia University in New York. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> she told me that when the babies were born, very common practice that all the nurses would immediately baptize the babies with a little bit of water or even a saliva. I have two grandchildren, and their parents haven't. Really gone through the process of going through the ceremony by privately um, baptizing with water. I know it's obviously not uh, taking the place of the ceremony, but is that child considered baptized?
2: Okay. Well, I can't let the first comment pass because baptism with saliva is not baptism. That's the the first point. Uh, And yeah, the practice of nurses uh, when they know that the parents want a child. Uh, who may be born in extremis to baptize them? I think it was only done when a child was born in extremis and and de- danger of not surviving the birth or or shortly. Uh, and then you
1: let's wrap up the rest of the answer here in yeah. just one second, and we'll also talk to Carolyn, Sean, Dave, and Jarrett. We've got plenty of time for your calls as well. On a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line, um, a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line, that's good enough, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: You know, we're having a big week here at EWTN radio this week. We'd like to congratulate His Mercy Radio, KJCR in Grants Pass, Oregon. They're celebrating seven years on the air. St. Valentine Radio in uh, Amarillo, Texas, KDJW. They're marking their 16th anniversary as an EWTN affiliate. And Athens Catholic Radio, WXPB. In Athens, Georgia, celebrating five years of solid Catholic radio. Congratulations from all of us here at EWTN Radio. 833 288, EWTN is our toll free number. We're talking to Jerry in Naples, Florida, and Jerry was asking about the uh, licitness and the validity right, of yeah. him baptizing his children, his grandchildren.
2: Yeah, I think it was another family member he was talking about who has done it. But it's not the mind of the church if it's done properly it's a baptism um but it's not the mind of the church because the church says that the god has given authority of those children to the parents and as close to being the parents of those kids as grandparents are they nonetheless aren't the parents and they aren't the one ones to whom providence has has given the custody and the care of those children uh, and the church does that for two things, also in part because of the, the, the lines of authority there and who has a moral, moral responsibility and the responsibility from God. But also from the practical side is the guaranteeing of being raised in the Catholic faith um, because in a way you make the child a target of spiritual forces, that would be one element of it, without the defenses which they would get in a truly Catholic home, and I, I think uh, that that's certainly a very uh, important aspect of it. And so I think you don't want to preempt that stage. It also has a lack of confidence in God's own providence, as if if I don't do it, it will never happen. When reality, God loves that child and will more concerned about the salvation of that child than even the grandparents are or even the parents if they love that child to the you know to the dickens they still <clears throat> compared to god nothing he has a plan for them and to do it improvidently is never never his will uh so uh valid yes but not prudent
1: thanks jerry we appreciate the call 833 ewtn is our toll-free number 833-288-3986. Next up is Sean in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Sean, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi,
4: hi, Colin. Thank you for taking
3: my call.
1: You're welcome. Uh, just
4: a
3: quick question regarding. Oh, sorry, um, just a quick question regarding the terminology for sisters, nuns, and mothers. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Are they completely interchangeable, or or is there a subtle difference, you know, between the titles?
2: Yeah. Uh, as categories, there's a lot of similarities there. So, for example, uh, a nun is a sister, but a sister is generally uh, used more broadly for sisters in in all apostolate uh, apostles, whether uh, they go out or whether they are in the apostolate of prayer in contemplative life uh nuns is generally reserved for that second category those in contemplative life so nuns are sisters not all sisters are nuns mother uh understood as a generic expression so uh we are you know those of us who are natural parents uh the clergy and religious become spiritual parents so there's a sense in which all women who have dedicated themselves to god are mothers they teach you know, classes as uh, sisters have traditionally done or they work in hospitals. They're, they're doing a motherly service for young children or older people or whomever, where, in whatever their apostolate they're in or praying for them in convents and monasteries. And so in that sense, yes, they, are, they have a spiritual motherhood. But as a title, as a formal title, mother is generally reserved to those who head communities. So a mother, Angelica. Or in communities where they have terms, it's uh, there's a you can be abbess or superior for a period of time. It's also then also used for all of those who are though they are no longer in authority at one time were the mother of that community. So distinguishing between a generic idea of spiritual motherhood and the title of mother as a a formal title of an office, uh, that's that would be one way to look at that.
1: Does that clear it up, Sean? Yeah, I appreciate the answer. Thank you so much. You're You're welcome. welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Carolyn in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Carolyn, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hi, Colin. Hi there. My question, I guess, is another one with terminology. Um, As regards when we make the sign of the cross, uh, does a person have the option of saying Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit?
2: Well, only if you want your prayers to be valid, you would have to say Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jack's laughing because I'm I'm really joking here. Um, which,
1: which recently I was uh, I have learned yeah. that really Holy Spirit preceded Holy Ghost in the English vernacular, and then kind of made a comeback. So really, Holy Spirit is the more ancient
2: convention, well, I think. Yeah, and I. And I think, I mean, you've hit upon the key element of this, that there is linguistic traditions, and that's what's important. The Latin tradition is spiritus sanctus, spiritus, that comes taken from, uh, uh, you know, earlier usages. And the spirit, uh, in in this case, comes into English uh, as spirit. It comes into the Romance languages as some variation of spirit. Uh, but with the Anglo Saxon invasion of England, they brought that old German or Frisian or whatever they brought over. And, Geist. And it's Heilige Geist in, in German today, in modern German. And so that's where, that's where the ghost makes its way for a spirit. So ghosts are, are what we use. We say ghost if human spirits, or maybe poltergeist for mischievous spirits. So all of those words are Germanic uh, in origin. But no, as far as your prayer goes, uh, a lot of older people still, because the mass used to say, Holy Ghost, our prayers. You know, uh, I was trying to solve a problem for one of our departments here recently regarding, uh, you know, some uh, an ancient prayer and what the verbiage was, well, The all the old books before about 1960 all say Holy Ghost, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The breveries, the prayer books, and other things, uh, I'm sure the Missal as well. So uh, that's perfectly fine, but it's just another linguistic tradition for the same reality of the third person of the Holy Trinity.
1: Does that put your heart at rest, Carolyn?
3: Well, I certainly uh, appreciate that explanation. But the reason I had the question was because now I myself, I say Holy Spirit, but I do know Catholics who think that we must say Holy Ghost.
2: Well, I think they would be wrong, because uh, if anything, uh, I think more traditional Catholics would probably approve of the Latin usage, and Holy Spirit is closer to the Latin usage. It's not intervened through by way of Latin to German to English to us.
1: God bless you, Carol, and thanks for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Jarrett in the great state of Kansas, listening on the EWTN app. Jarrett, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hey, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate the show. Sure. Um, I've got a, a Protestant friend that we talk about, survival and everything, every once in a while, and he called me the other day, and he's struggling with, praying to the dead, mm-hmm. and more, more on on the free will part of it, he thinks that, oh, those people had their chance while they're alive through free will, what's my prayers going to do to help them since they're dead? And I tried my best to explain mm-hmm. to him uh, our stance on purgatory and stuff. I didn't know if you could explain it a little better and maybe give some advice to him on praying to the dead.
2: Yeah, I guess it depends on what he thinks our prayers for the dead are going to do. They're not going to lift them out of hell. Uh, And so that's a done deal. When we die, the relationship we have with God is the one we will have for all eternity. And that will be formalized at our judgment before Christ, which will occur at the moment uh, right after death. Now, uh, we have the conundrum of as I'm dying, or let's say I die suddenly, and I recognize already that I'm sort of a flawed person, I'm a good person, I, I love the Lord, I try to do, you know, well by what he has asked me to do in life, to keep his commandments and so on, you know, but I have all these faults, Are uh, those suddenly removed, or am I a human being in my human nature having been affected by this, God also respects that. So I think it's either we either die and we, all, we just go to heaven and that's it, or, uh, or hell, as the case may be, or that there is a place of purification. And I think that's a sort of the logical approach. The other element of it is this. Christ clearly did not come he says it in the gospels he did not come to overthrow the law he did not overcome to overthrow justice he uses justice as a springboard to explaining how charity goes beyond justice you know turning the other cheek it's not that it would be just wouldn't be just to slug the guy but to turn the other cheek is to uh, to show virtue and tolerance and patience and maybe find another way another teachable moment to bring this person to truth. So he uses charity as a perfection of justice. And I think that's another prism lens that we can look at through this. So now, when we go to the sort of the greatest praise of charity and of virtue humanly ever given, humanly or divinely, and that is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about justice. He talks about settle with the judge. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about Judge Smith down here at the county court? No, I don't think so. He's the judge. So you could put in there, when you go before the judge, settle on the way before you arrive at my court, because if you haven't played the last penny, what does that mean? If you haven't settled all the debts of justice... You are put into prison. What's prison? A place of rehabilitation, of correction. And you will come out of it when that is done. That's purgatory. There's a real but weak foundation in the Jewish law, in the Jewish practices. We see that in the books of Maccabees, which the early reformers threw out, precisely because it's contradicted most of their positions on this point but also because it was weak and it needed, it needed the church and the, the tradition of the church to amplify this. And that is the idea of making sacrifice and prayer for the dead, as, as Judas Maccabeus did. Okay, so there, there is something that hints at it, but it takes Christ and it takes the apostles and it takes the church to develop what that means. How the, how the injustice, which even the just may die in because they are not yet perfect, Being perfect, we know is needed. Be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, he said on that same occasion. And John reinforces that at the end of the Bible. Nothing impure shall enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. So I'm a good guy, but I wouldn't say that I'm as pure as, you know, iron that's gone through the fire. You know, as uh, purifying the sons of Levi or any of the other scriptural allusions. That's going to need work. And that's why we all need to think about, in this life, we either pay those debts, those little debts, those blemishes on our record, or we will pay for them afterwards. And again, Christ can't be talking about hell because we get out of it. So, granted, Catholics have the advantages of the church authority and the long tradition to lay this out and to lend its weight to belief in it and the non-catholic has to sort of reason through it and get to something that well, i can you know he can get his hands on and say and I, I hope that gives him something to get his hands on but it's logical it's consistent with the whole tenor of, of christ's ministry that he's not d- destroying justice he is perfecting it and how's that perfected by grace by love and that's exactly what perfects us in purgatory god's love god's grace to make us perfect to enter into the heavenly jerusalem
1: Be sure to check out Conversations with Consequences this Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Dr. Grazie Christie and the Catholic Association colleagues of hers, Ashley McGuire and Lee Sneed, discuss Walking with Moms in Need, a parish-driven pro-life ministry spearheaded by the USCCB to help moms-to-be choose life with confidence. That's Conversations with Consequences this Saturday, 7 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Dave in Cincinnati, Ohio, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Dave, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hey, you guys. I oh. wanted to uh, uh, wish you and your listeners uh, terrific health and many more great memories uh, here at in life. Thank you. Well, hey, you're worth it. <laughs> I don't care what I say behind your back or on this side of the phone.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, just just being uh, joking. Um, uh, a friend of mine, we've been going round and round about, he's under the belief because St. Paul wrote a letter To one of the churches about God uh, bringing down a strong delusion on the people, and my friend is convinced that uh, there's a strong delusion over lots of people here in America. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, would the poem meant that God create a strong delusion? Um, And uh, and have you seen any evidence of it, or is there any in history?
2: I think here that has to be treated as if as you would treat the question of, you know, hardening the heart of Pharaoh. What did that mean? These are all cases where to use a principle with St. Alphonsus Liguori uh, talks about when he talks about calamities in the world and 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 things that go wrong in the world. that looks like if not a strong delusion, but at least a strong punishment, calamity coming from God and that is that if we are god's friend we're not spared the cross we're not you know we don't necessarily escape suffering but we suffer well because of christ we suffer with christ and we we suffer uh if we don't have christ we suffer much poorly and so when people when god does people don't want god in their lives in their kingdom what does he do He's not offering them graces of conversion that uh, they're going to refuse anyway. He knows who those are, likewise as he did with the Pharaoh, with people of today or of any time for that. He knows who of those are so fixed in their sins and their egotism, their, you know, I'm God, you're not kind of viewpoints. So he's withholding their grace. And that grace is often involving the protections, which I think the faithful, you know, you hear so many accounts from people about the providential ways. And we're not talking necessarily miracles here in the strict sense, but I think every Christian believer, Catholic and non-Catholic, who is seeking Christ and following him have these experiences that give them a strong sense that Christ is watching over them. Yes, he doesn't take the cross out of their life, but He experience, they experienced that because God indeed Intervenes to help us. Again, he begins withholding that. So, what happens when this becomes a general thing in the world? We only have our little old brains and our little old willpower. That's all that's left to us. And that leads to a lot of mischief. Now, I don't know if our days is the one which this strong delusion refers to. I think that refers to many times in history when civilizations and cultures collapse because they have made themselves God and they have forgotten the God who is God. And I think we do see that today. Uh, I think that text refers specifically to the very end of time, the time of the Antichrist. And I don't believe that's this time. We have a lot still to do, a lot of nations to yet evangelize and so on. And Those are the markers the fathers of the church lay down. But I think every generation experiences this, and I think we're experiencing one of, if not the worst case of it in history so far, in the degree in which not only is the revealed law of God, but the created law, the law he instilled in the natures of things, is rejected. And mankind, women, men and women, turn away from that. And I think that's the strong delusion that we think we are the ones who make reality rather than we accept the reality that is and live in accordance with it. That certainly describes our time. Many people do not accept the reality of things as they are, but they want to make their own reality about them because that's how they think they'll be happy. That's how they think uh, they'll get along in the world. And it's a delusion. Um, and I think that's certainly certainly true in our world today in many, many places. And the, every places are different. The developed countries are in much worse shape than Africa and Asia, for the most part, where they have, you know, they live a little bit more naturally and, and pretty much think in natural categories. You know, in the West, we've, uh, to use the Navy term, we've lost the bubble on all of these things. So, that's like a strong delusion. I, that's how I would see that. That uh, what St. Paul said.
1: We head next to Sarah in the great state of Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Sarah, thanks for holding. your arm with Colin.
3: Hi. Um, I had a follow-up question to mm-hmm. um, the one earlier about heaven. Um, I also have a 16-year-old son who asks some deep questions, and he recently asked something similar about the fact that uh, Jesus had ascended into heaven and so he is in heaven, in a human, you know, he's human, fully human and fully divine. And Mary was assumed bodily mm-hmm. in heaven. So where are they?
2: <laughs> right, right, and and that's that's a corollary there. In that, um, obviously, the human nature of Christ is not God; it doesn't exist eternally. It doesn't, uh, but it will exist, of course, until the end of time. So bodies are in places. So John Paul II, when speaking of this heaven. In the sense of the divine, the beatitude we'll have with the vision of God, is, is not a place. Christ, by the general consent of the fathers and doctors of the church, although modern theologians and some clerics I've heard it won't buy into this, Christ had the beatific vision while he walked this earth, because in his human soul. He could see he could, uh, was filled with the divine nature to the extent that a, crea- a creature can be. Um, and, when, and when there's a new heavens and new earth, and for those who are already died without their bodies, that's true of them now also. They have the beatific vision, which is an intellectual vision. It's in the soul. It's the filling of the intellect and will with the truth and the love of God to, to its capacity one capacity for our lady another one for you know the person who just squeaks in the door as it were but it's that filling and that's not incompatible with being in the body as the incarnation showed and so we will have something like that but that doesn't make heaven a place because heaven was wherever christ went the kingdom of god is among you uh it is in a, in that sense prefigured already in the church in the just because we are united with God in our souls, and we're walking around on the planet and doing things, uh, to that extent, the kingdom is already here, and in the in the church. But it won't be fully here until the renewal of the of the physical heavens and earth at the end of time. Uh, so, it like a lot of things in the theology, we're left with nuance of well, it's not a place strictly speaking, but we, our bodies must be in a place, and therefore place can be associated with it and i think the prime example of that is the incarnation in christ himself
1: and quickly we'll head to pete in lancaster ohio uh listening on saint gabriel radio Pete, just a couple minutes left with colin what's your question
4: uh good afternoon i just had a quick question um in regard to the recent issues we've had with some invalid mm-hmm. baptisms uh, uh, like the one in arizona and then i believe sure. it was san diego a friend of mine had asked me about it, and and I explained to him how you know the the other sacraments. You know, if it's invalid based on the baptism, the other ones are invalid also, and it has to be redone. His question was, what if someone had had an invalid baptism and maybe died, you know, a, a young at a, at a younger time before they were able to recognize or know that that was invalid and get it get it um, redone? Yeah, validated.
2: Sure. Well, the church has, has always accepted the, the baptism of intention. So the martyrs who were still catechumens were, uh, can you know, God's not going to say, you know, tut, tut, tut. You didn't, you know, you didn't do the right things. You didn't get baptized quick enough. No, they're on their way. And likewise, a person who in the church they're baptized they're practicing the faith uh there's no there's no question of their intention to be baptized even though a human being failed to do what they were supposed to do so i think we safely leave leave that matter to god and that they will be in in heaven as a consequence of that based on other categories like the catechumens that we've seen uh and i think uh My own personal speculation on this is this is true also of the unborn of miscarriages in Catholic families where the parents who have authority over the children um, have, have intended to baptize them. Now, the Pope has not called me and said, you're right, Colin, we're going to put that into the catechism, but that's my explanation and speculation.
1: He doesn't have a bat phone to Colin's no, office? No, no, I don't think so. Oh, well, okay. Man. Shatter all my illusions of you, Colin. <laughs> have a great weekend. <laughs> you too. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again. Father John Trigilio on Monday next week, followed by Father Wade Menezes on Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship. Father Mitch on Wednesday, Dominican Father Brian Milady on Thursday, and we'll wrap things up again next week with Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, on Thursday. Have a great weekend. God bless.